We'll be in Job for the last time tonight. Job chapter 40. You know, the Lord has just revealed some incredible things in this, in this book to us. And I think probably for me personally, the most uh, powerful thing that the Spirit taught, and we talked about this on Sunday, and I've come back to it several times this week, that it's not in our questions that we find peace. It's not in our questions that we find that hope. It's not in our questions that our faith is strengthened. It's impressing in to the Lord. It's being in the presence of Jesus. If you are ever walking alongside someone who is in pain or, or agony or hurting over some tragedy in life, seeking to answer the question, which is often what I want to do, I want to give an answer, that doesn't often help. But what helps is just saying, let's just press into the Lord together. Let's just be with Jesus together. And pray for the comfort of the Holy Spirit and ask the Lord to, to be there. That's where the peace is found, the peace that surpasses all comprehension, as Paul wrote. Job, I believe, is starting to get that. Starting to understand that it's in the mighty and awesome presence of God that questions aren't necessarily answered, but peace is found. Let's bow. Father, You are so good. And You are so gracious. At the same time, You are holy and lofty and lifted up above all things. You also make Your home in the heart of the contrite and the lowly. And we are undeserving of this, but so thankful. And God, as we open up again for the last time this, this book, this old ancient writing, pray that You will speak to us fresh and new, and You will rekindle joy in our hearts, and lift up our spirits to the truth, lift up our hearts to the place of worship and adoration, that we will not just close our Bibles and walk out of here tonight, but Father, we will take with us all that Your Spirit has spoken and we will be changed. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the power that it has to change our hearts and our lives. Speak to us now, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and he said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer. Even twice. And I will add nothing more. Job is startled and Job is humbled. And halfway through, the questions of God returned at Job, spoken to Job, thundering out of the whirlwind, firing off questions like lightning strikes. Job is in a place of great humility. He uses the word insignificant. I am puny. I'm small. I'm nothing by comparison. Here in the classroom of creation, as we talked about last week, Job finally sees the absurdity and the audacity of a man who would challenge God. But God's not finished. In fact, Job still needs pressing. He's gotten to the place of humility. He needs to go further. 
And the Lord would and needs to take Job further. Job was depressed, and now he's impressed, but he needs to be pressed all the more. Pushed in further to be where the Lord needs him to be so that Job can be back in restored relationship with God. You see, it's one thing to be humbled before God. Anybody can be humbled. Before the Lord or before creation, you know, as the Lord points out all these aspects of creation that Job can't possibly know or understand. It's one thing to be in that place of of being humbled. Isaiah 66, verse 2, the Lord said, My hand made all these things, and thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Well, let me tell you, many people can tremble at the word of God. People can tremble and shake at the sight of creation. Many will tremble at the sight of a volcanic eruption such as happened recently. Boy, you look at the pictures from that and it makes you tremble at how awesome a sight that was. Many people will shake before the power of a tornado, several ripping through America this last week. And, and watching, I don't know if you saw the, the film that was on the news of the guys who were in the car and they're driving along and they pass other people on the road standing outside their car while this tornado blasts by and it's It's frightening. In fact, being a child growing up in Southern California, earthquakes didn't bother me at all. I mean, I woke up to earthquakes all the time. You know, the bed shaking and, oh, here's another one. But tornadoes, tornadoes filled my nightmares. I, I didn't want to ever see or be involved in a tornado. People will shudder at the waves of the tsunami that we've talked about recently. And the power of nature. And it is humbling. And in especially those naturally powerful moments... People will even, in their fear and horror, cry out to God. I mentioned those tsunami videos and going back last week and looking at some of those and you hear people crying out to God as the waves are crashing onto land. People will enter into that place of humility sometimes rather easily, but it's, it's one thing to be humbled. It's yet another thing to repent. And that's where Job needs to get. He is at this point, and I think it's interesting we're shown this, that he does respond to God halfway through these questions, but it's a humble response. Oh, I'm small. Oh, I'm insignificant. That's great, Job, but you need to go a step further. He needs to get to repentance, and so the Lord begins to press him more. Verse 6. Verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins. Like a man, brace yourself again, Job, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Go ahead, go into the dressing room, Job, and put these things on. Let's see how they look on you. See if you can wear these things, eminence, dignity, honor, majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then... I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. You do these things, and and I'll come confess before you, Job. An awesome statement God makes here. On Sunday, we ask that question why does God 
put Job down. And we read Isaiah 57.15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And we talked about the fact that Job needed to get to the point where he knew he needed saving. And he needed to know God was big enough to save him. But also, there's something to add to that equation. He needed saving. He needed to know God was big enough to save him. And Job needed to know that for all his righteousness, he couldn't save himself. Job was righteous. We've covered this many times. We've seen again and again. He is not to blame here for the situation that he's in, the trauma, the turmoil, the tragedy. He was a righteous man, but even the most righteous of the righteous is not good enough to save themselves. And Job needed to understand that. Four months back, that's how long we've been in this book, I asked this question as we began. Whose story, biblically, would you pick to teach the world about repentance? Who would you choose out of all the people in Scripture, all the men and women? I'd go right to Adam. (laughs) Here's a picture of a guy who needed to repent. He blew it. He needs to repent. Or David would be a great example. David who blew it with Bathsheba. This man needed repentance. I would not have chosen Job. Because Job was righteous. He's the kind of guy you go, oh, no, he's good, somebody else. But for all his goodness, all his righteousness, he still needed to turn to the Lord if there was a hope of salvation. God chose this most righteous man to reveal to us the necessity of repentance. So we're right back now where we started from. That it was necessary for Job, righteous as he was, to repent. Because repentance is not humility. Humility is required to repent. You're not going to repent if you're not humble. But it's not one and the same thing. Sometimes we think to repent just means to you know, get yourself low and to look contrite. To look humble. Oh, I'm such a sinner. You know, I feel you know, so bad. No. You can do that all day long and you still haven't repented. Repentance is turning to God. Repentance is when you finally lift up your head and say, Lord, I'm with you. I am with you. I, I will walk wherever you go. I want to be where you are. That's repentance. And that's where Job had to go. Isaiah 45.22 The Lord says, Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 55 verse 1, He says, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you the faithful mercies shown to David. Jesus said in John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's repentance. Come to me. Turn to me. Walk with me, the Lord says. And of course Jesus said in Matthew 11.28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Job's humble, but not quite repentant. And humility is not repentance. It's the precursor to repentance. And I believe that's why the Lord continues even now to press Job. Now, he's going to do it by adding two more creatures in the classroom of creation. Two more creatures to this vast cadre of creatures that he's already mentioned. But these two are most mysterious. 
And you can go down the list that we've looked at before, and we're all familiar with all the other creatures that he's listed so far. Not necessarily these two, although you may have heard the names. They're two of the most mysterious animals, creatures, creations mentioned in biblical history. The first one is behemoth, or behemoth. Behemoth is the plural form of the word behema, which literally means a four-footed creature. But in this case, it's plural. And the description, behemoth, is supposed to describe something bigger than your average four-footed creature. Listen to this, down in verse 15, chapter 40. Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinew of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food. All the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down. In the covert of the reeds and the marsh, the lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he's not alarmed, he's confident though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Interesting. What is this creature that's being described here? Now, there have been a lot of different ideas thrown out there. Some say an elephant, but an elephant doesn't really fit completely anyway. Some would say, and many have concluded, it's a hippopotamus. Now, if you go back and read through it, they say hippopotamus because you know, he eats grass like an ox. Makes sense. He He's under the lotus plants. The willows of the brook surround him. The river rages. He's not alarmed. You can see a hippo in there. Hippos are big mama-jama animals. These are bad boys. Some can weigh up to four tons. That's huge. And you do not want to be in the way of a charging hippo. You don't want to make him angry. I knew this because I was on the jungle boat cruise at Disneyland. <laughs> and when those ears started wiggling, get that boat moving, man. What's amazing is every time our guide saves us. I love that. (laughs) The hippopotamus, and you can read this into the section we just read, these verses, he's a herbivore. And it's interesting. He eats plants for sustenance. Verse 20 says right here, Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. So no one's really afraid, at least of the other animals. They're not running away from from this creature if it's a hippopotamus. Why wouldn't they run away? Because he's a plant eater. He's no threat. Okay, possibly. And of course, the hippo has incredibly powerful legs and belly muscles. You know, as as funky as those things look down in the water, when they get out of the water and they start to charge, they can move. They are fast. But how many hippopotamuses do you know bend their tails like cedar trees? (laughs) Have you seen the tail of a a hippopotamus? It's like a little shoestring hanging down there. That's no cedar. So something's not working out here. And in verse 19, God even calls him the first of the ways of God. This animal is like one of the pinnacles of creation. And by the way, first doesn't mean first created. It means biggest. One of the largest, one of the most impressive of the ways or the creations of God. What are you saying, Rick? I think Behemoth was a dinosaur. I think very obviously, and we're probably talking in a patasaurus, what you know was formerly called the brontosaurus. You read that in, think about pictures you've seen of a brontosaurus and a patasaurus. 
I mean, with a big, massive tail coming down, that's a tail like a cedar tree. This is an animal that stands in the stream, and if the water's rushing, big deal. You know? But it's also an animal that as he's munching on plants, all the other animals are walking around him unafraid, unconcerned, because he's not going after them. Not a big deal. Okay, but there's another problem. If this is a dinosaur, an apatosaur, you know, or a brontosaurus, that kind of creature, are you saying that these creatures were around in the days of Job? Possibly. Possibly. Back in 1982, found in the Paluxy River in Texas, and that's a big dinosaur find, Paluxy, Texas, actually near Glen Rose, 14 human footprints were found alongside 153 large dinosaur footprints in a large riverbed. And it was the source of some controversy. Because scientists say, no, 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 dinosaurs millions of years ago, millions of years before man. Apatosaurus, 150 years, or 150 million years before mankind came onto the earth. And man did not coexist with the dinosaur, so how do you explain big dino footprints, little human footprints, in the same riverbed? And, of course, the critics have gone after that. It was not reported, and you won't find it in our, in our school textbooks. But it's a fierce controversy, and it continues to rage today. What's interesting is they found more human footprints in tributaries feeding into the Paluxy River that date back to the same time as the footprints of these big dinos that they've discovered. And the footprints, the original 14, were found the way they were shaped and formed. It looked as though perhaps these humans were chasing after this big beast. Interesting. So humans and dinosaurs may very well have been present at the same time. Well, I I think absolutely were. Some say, well, okay, but even creationists, don't they say dinosaurs died out with the flood? Job came after the flood. So how would you work that out? That's that's simple. Job came around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a thousand years after the flood. A thousand years is not a long time. Especially consider what do we know that occurred a thousand years ago? A lot of things. We're very aware of many things and can point to them and show you know, archaeological evidence of them, things that happened a thousand years ago. We tell the stories. We know the history. We're aware of it. So for there to be behemoth, the dinosaur, even extinct by the flood, Job a thousand years later could easily understand or know what God was talking about and be aware of this. Interesting. Behemoth. However, you get to this point and God reminds us it's not the creature that we need to be so impressed with. It's the Creator. The Creator. Verse 24. Can anyone capture Him? Wait, did I skip something there? No, no. Verse 24. Can anyone capture Him when He is on watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce His nose? Job, do you have the power to wrangle an Apatosaurus? Could you take down a Brontosaurus? Could you fight a dinosaur and win, Job? I mean, think about this. I made him is the implication. I made him. I put him there. You couldn't even take him down if you wanted to. And it cracks me up that the last thing God says about Behemoth is, can you pierce his nose? Can you pierce his nose? Now, I'm not looking around. I don't know if any of you have a pierced nose. I know some people think it's cool. That's fine for you. It's not for me. 
But the implication here is, Job, could you get a hold of this creature, put a hook through his nose, and lead him around by the nose? Job knows better than that. (laughs) Moving on to the next creature. Chapter 41, we come to not Behemoth, but now it's Leviathan. And this one is even more interesting. Verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you or will he speak to you soft words? (laughs) Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons? Or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. And remember the battle. You will not do it again. <laughs> Behold, your expectation is false. Don't you, let me just say this. Don't you love the Lord? I just love it. And we're getting personality here. We're getting some personality of God here. Even as he says these things, he is so funny. And he has such a sense of humor and a sense of the ironic and the sardonic and even the sarcastic as he makes these comments. You will not do it again. Your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me? And now the Lord brings it off of creature back to creator. Who has given to me that I should repay? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Behemot, Leviathan, these are my creatures. These are like puppy dogs to the Lord. Household pets that He created and placed on the earth. These are mine. The Lord says, Job, if you can't stand before these, how do you dare stand before me? If you really, you think that you can come up to me with the attitude that you've shown, but, but these massive, amazing, mysterious, wonderful creatures, you'd run away like a frightened chicken. But you're standing up to me, Job? Do you see the irony of this? And it reminds me that there's only one way to stand before the living God. And it is not on our own. And it is not by our power. Jude wrote... In verse 24 of his little book, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Three things there that are absolutely stunning. That you could stand up at all in the presence of God, first of all. Secondly, that you could do so blamelessly. And thirdly, with great joy. And only one can do that. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen, Jude. You're right on. I can't stand before God, much less blameless, much less with great joy. I'd be shaken in my boots. But because of what Jesus Christ did, I will stand there. In the glory and awesome presence of God, a blameless, joyful, saved person. But what is this creature, Leviathan? It has something to do with the sea. We know that. We hear about harpoons here and and fish hooks. 
Something about the sea. Psalm 74, referring to Leviathan, verse 13 says, You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. God, you did this. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. And something to do again with the sea. Psalm 104, verse 25 says, There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals, both small and great. There the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. A creature of the sea. Some have suggested the blue whale. Now, the blue whale is a favorite animal of mine, largest among all the creatures. I remember seeing in a book when I was a kid, first time I'd ever see a picture of a blue whale, and lined up along its back, 30 African bull elephants could fit on the back of a blue whale. That's how big they are. Blue whales are anywhere from 80 to 100 feet in length, and they weigh as much as 120 tons. 120 tons. Kid hippo, four tons. Okay. 120 tons. Huge animal. The heart of a blue whale alone, just his beating heart, weighs half a ton. Which is roughly the size of a Volkswagen bug. That's Imagine, that's the size of the heart of a blue whale. Big, massive beast of the sea swimming along. But Leviathan is probably not the blue whale. Read a bit further, verse 12. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs. Oops. Okay. Now we're blue whales out. Or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come with his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. Okay, a blue whale has, has what is that called? Baleen or... Is that right? You know, the big kind of brushy-like stuff that catches little plankton. Not sharp, frightening teeth. Verse 15, His strong scales are his pride. Shut up, as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined to one another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. Okay, now it's beginning to sound like another creature out there. A massive saltwater crocodile creature of the sea these things are impressive scales, teeth the the difference, uh, you may know this between a crocodile and an alligator, I finally figured it out crocodile will have four teeth jutting up out of its mouth alligator you don't see the teeth it's closed up, the crocodile is kind of big and lumbering has those teeth sticking up, nasty looking things, they have powerful limbs and musculature today, saltwater crocs grow upwards of 25 to 30 feet long which would roughly be one side of the stage to the other. I think it's, is that about 30 feet, guys? What do you think? Roughly? That's a big, big bad boy. We have skeletal records that show that female saltwater crocs have grown as big as 55 feet and males have reached 70 feet in length. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and they can run faster than any human being can run. In fact, they say if you're ever chased down, I'm probably an important safety tip for you, if you're ever being chased by a saltwater crocodile, zigzag. Because they they don't turn very well. But you get them going straight and you're toast. 
Best thing to do, run back and forth on the beach. Okay? They can outrun any human. Off the beaches of New Guinea, what these creatures do is they burrow down in the sand to where they're not noticeable. They're under the cool sand and they wait until some unsuspecting tourist comes walking by. And they explode out of the sand, grab their prey in their jaws, drag them down into the surf and roll them until they drown. Then they take the carcass of their prey back to their nest and they drop it off there for it to rot and marinate in the sun for two or three days and then they come back and they have dinner. The saltwater crocodile. Crocs are cool. It used to be my favorite exhibit at the San Diego Zoo. We would go down there and that was what I wanted to see because it just freaked me out, you know? And then those movies started coming out that showed the crocodiles. I think Jewel of the Nile was one of them and the Indiana Jones movies and, the, and you know, the guys with the crocodiles. And I just love that. Leviathan's not a crocodile. Can't be. Why not? Read on. His sneezes flash forth light. Now that's not funny. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. What? Read on. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth. Now I've been at the dentist when smoke was coming out of my mouth, but not out of my nostrils. It says, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes, verse 21, his breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. His neck lodges strength, and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, even his heart as a lower heart as a lower millstone, or literally as a brimstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He goes on and says, He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. What kind of a creature, mythological or actual, does this sound like? It's a dragon. It reads, it sounds, it looks, it's a, a picture painted here of a fire-breathing dragon. Now you might say, well, pastor, there's no such thing as dragons. Actually, there is. Isaiah 27 verse 1 tells us, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And fascinating, every culture in the history of man has its dragon mythology. Every culture. There's got to be something to this. There is. Leviathan, I do believe, is the very picture of the dragon, Satan. Leviathan is God's description of Satan. You know, what's ironic as we read through the end of the book of Job, there are scholars who are disappointed by the way it ends. 
They describe it as a masterful book of poetry and, and, and verse and prose and the way it's written out and comes a wonderful book, but it gets down to the end and they just say, you know, it loses something because it begins with this epic confrontation between the Lord and Satan. You know how the Lord lures Satan into getting into this little battle that the Lord wins before the book is half over. But it starts off here. First two chapters, we see Satan showing up. We see the adversary, the antagonist. We see poor little Job, the protagonist, perhaps, of the story. And suddenly Satan's gone. Chapter 3 on, you don't hear hide nor hair of him again. He's just vanished. He disappears. It's kind of like the end of It's a Wonderful Life. Does this bother anybody else? Potter doesn't get it. I mean, he doesn't get his. Harry Bailey, everybody comes in, and he's the richest man in town, and they're all singing, and, and you know, and he's, oh, that's right there, you know, when every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. I mean, it's wonderful. But meanwhile, over in his office downtown, Potter still has the 8,000 bucks. If you haven't seen the movie by now, I'm sorry I spoiled it for you. And he doesn't, no one goes after him. He doesn't get in trouble. He gets away with it. And that has bothered me for years. And it's the same situation here. Where's the antagonist? Where's the dealing with Satan? He's, he's not there. Or is he? Because here comes the Lord in speaking. Again, the classroom of creation. All these created things. He gets to behemoth. It's an amazing beast. And then he comes to this Leviathan. And Leviathan, a dragon. It's got to be a dragon. Is it Satan? I believe that's exactly what's going on. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says, The great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. You might say, well, but Leviathan is obviously also a creature of the sea. What's that all about? What's the connection of the sea to Satan? Good question. Revelation 13 verse 1 tells us the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads and on his horns were ten diadems and on his heads were blasphemous names and if you've studied Revelation you know this is Antichrist. Picture of Antichrist. Yeah, but the dragon didn't come out of the sea. Antichrist, or the beast came out of the sea and the dragon's there on the seashore. Listen, the beast coming out of the sea, the sea may literally be the sea of humanity. That may be the picture we're talking about here. Leviathan in the sea, swimming through the sea of humanity, moving in and among us. And it's out of the sea of humanity that we know because of other verses, the 666, where John says, hey, be smart about this. It's just the number of a man. Antichrist will be a person, a man. And so for the beast to come up out of the sea, to come up out of the sea of humanity makes perfect sense. But Antichrist will be the first who is completely Satan-possessed. Not demon-possessed. Satan-possessed. Satan will at one point enter into and completely possess Antichrist for his own purposes, for his own use. The dragon, the beast, the sea. I want to study that further. There are some clues here. There are some other clues in the passage, by the way, that tell us that this is likely Satan and not just some mystical, mysterious, mythological dragon. Verse 4, go back and look at it. Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? 
Who did Daniel say was going to make a covenant with the many for seven years? Daniel chapter 9. Antichrist. And what's interesting about Satan, people still attempt to make deals with the devil. People still think they can. They can covenant with the devil. Okay, well, you know the old song, the devil went down to Georgia. People think they can do that. Well, I'll do this for you if you give this to me. Actually thinking that perhaps they'll end out coming, you know, end up coming out ahead. It's not going to happen. You don't deal with the devil. You can't make a deal with the devil. You always lose. Well, I wouldn't make a deal with the devil. We do all the time. We make little mental promises, little deals with ourselves. I'm just going to do this thing. No one's looking. You're dealing with the devil. Anytime we give the flesh first place, anytime we function out of our carnality, we're in essence dealing with the devil. Will you covenant with him? The Lord says in verse 4. I mean, Peter said in 1 Peter 5 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan only deals to his benefit. Only deals in his favor. So, Rick, you really believe Leviathan is Satan? Hey, if the scales fit, look at verse 24. His heart is hard as a stone. We see Satan hardening the hearts of people, functioning out of hardened hearts. That is very much along the lines of something Satan does and would do. Verse 31 says, He makes the depths boil like a pot. Interesting. The depths boil. And listen to God's final description of this dragon-like beast. Verse 33, Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. Now listen to this. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Now that is Satan. King of the sons of pride. Isaiah 14, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the recesses of the north. I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, God says to Satan, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. I think Leviathan is a picture of Satan. Why? Why, Lord, are you doing this? After all these animals discussed in the previous couple of chapters, and then this behemoth, this big thing, also another, why, why end with this Leviathan dragon picture with these hints and clues throughout of it alluding to Satan? Why do this? It's actually a fantastic conclusion to the book. A stunning end. In God's thunderous reply... He's saying, Job, do you get it? I created the very creature that brought you all this pain and grief. The stuff you've been struggling with for the last several months, Job, you know who brought that on you? You know who came after you? Leviathan, the dragon, Satan. He's the one who did this. But you need to understand something else, Job. I made him. God, what are you saying? I am far bigger than He is. 
I mean, what are you fearing here? What are you worried about? I brought this one into existence and I can take him out. And Job already mysteriously understood this. Job had already said something about this back in Job 26 verse 12. He said, He quieted the sea with His power, which by the way Jesus did, and by His understanding He shattered Rahab, which we talked about before as a Babylonian creation myth. And Job said, By His breath the heavens are cleared and His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Job is already aware of the power of God to defeat the serpent, that old dragon, Satan. But it's amazing to me that God illuminates, points to the very cause of the suffering, the pain, and the trauma of Job. He's paraded here, at least descriptively, in front of Job. And Job is asked, can you tame this creature? Well, look over the past several months of your life. Obviously, you cannot. You can't tame him. He's wasted you, Job. But this is what's amazing. This creature that Job can't tame still belongs on the list that we've been reading. What do you mean? The lion, the raven, the ibex, the gazelle, the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, the horse, the hawk, the eagle, even behemoth, leviathan, the fire-breathing dragon is nothing more than a created being. One of the creatures... God alone is Creator. In this picture, God just blows away this whole yin-yang. You know, God is perfect good and Satan is perfect evil and they balance each other out like the light side and the dark side of the force. (laughs) That is such baloney. Makes for a great movie. And that's it. Now, Satan is an underling. Satan is a created being One writer put it this way, For all his breathtaking power, the prince of darkness is merely a creature, just one more lowly lump of dust in the hands of an omnipotent creator. The Lord parades this before Job. And he makes his point. Man cannot tame the fiery serpent, the old dragon. We can't deal with him. We can't even guess at his treachery. But himself being nothing more than a created being, God can both tame him and God can and will take him out. And we need the Lord. We need the Lord desperately to take this treacherous creature out of our lives. We need the power of Creator to go before us. The angels understood this book of Jude. Remember Michael? Michael did not dare give a railing rebuke against Satan when they argued over the body of Moses. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael understood. God's cre- We're just created beings. Michael, the archangel, Satan. We're just created beings, but the Creator rebuke you. The Creator comes before me. And so with this amazing description of God's power, even over the dragon, the heart of Job finally begins to shift from now humility into repentance. Chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he quotes the Lord, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? (laughs) 
And we'll see Job raising his hand. Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. That which I did not know. And he quotes God again. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract. And I repent in dust and in ashes. I repent. He gets it. God has now pressed Job into repentance. What is it that finally brings the repentance out of Job? It's his recognition that it is not his righteousness that saves him. It is God's righteousness. It is the Lord alone. And this is where God has been pushing him to go. The pressing. The pressing. After all of this, Job finally realizes that pushing back against God in rebellion is not the answer. It's pressing into the Lord that is the answer. It's like Paul. Paul learned the same thing when he was Saul. He was kicking back. He was fighting the very move of the Holy Spirit through the Jewish people in Jesus and into the apostles. And Paul's fighting against that. And I love what, he, what the Lord says to Paul, Acts 26, verse 14. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Paul? What are the goads? Cattle prods? They're these sticks that they would use to poke the animals and keep them in line and move them along. And God's trying to do this with Saul and he's not paying attention. And finally Jesus says, well, it's really tough for you to do this. Frustrated, aren't you, son? Stop pushing against me and start pressing in to me. That's repentance. And the struggle. You probably went through it. I have more than once. But the struggle of the human being who is pushing against God, trying to get our way, looking for the answer to the unanswerable question. And the Lord's saying, you know, the more you push, the harder it's going to get. Why don't you just press into me? Fall into me. Repent. Turn to me. Stop fighting me. Saul, Job, you and me, we just need to repent. We need to continue to repent, to turn back to the Lord again and again, because when we do, wonderful things begin to happen. I mean, look at what follows repentance. Number one, a couple of things just to note here at the end. Repentance restores relationship. As we see in verse 7, it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You guys are in trouble. Out of the pool, line up against the wall. It is punishment time. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you. What a wonderful God. You see what he's doing here? Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar get it. We blew it. We were wrong. Job gets it. And God takes all four of these friends and pulls them together to work out restoration by repentance. And it's not just restoration between these four guys and God. It's restoration of their friendship. Which as we saw through Job took a beating. 
These guys going after each other and chewing on each other and beating up on each other. And finally the Lord says, no, we're not going to have any more of that. You four, get your heads together. Let's have some offering. Let's have some prayer. Let's have some repentance. Let's bring it back around. My servant Job will pray for you. I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them. And I love this last line of verse 9. And the Lord accepted Job. Why is... What? Wait. I thought the Lord was going to have Job pray for them so he'd accept them. No. The Lord now accepts Job. Why? Because Job accepts them. Remember what Jesus said? That you will be forgiven even as you have forgiven. And so Job is accepted by the Lord. The relationships here restored. This is absolutely marvelous. God wanted a right relationship with Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz as much as He wanted a right relationship with Job. But before that could happen, Job had to repent. Because Job was in no place to restore a relationship with his friends. He had to repent. And not to his friends. He had to repent to the Lord. There's a key here in the restoring of relationships by repentance. The key is our own repentance. If you are in a relationship that's broken, that's gone through hard times, that's cracked and fissured and and you don't know how to put it back together, your first step is not going back and, and, and going after the person and trying to make right, make right, make... No, your first step is to turn to the Lord. You may not have done anything wrong. You may not even be to blame any more than Job was. But your first step, my first step, well, Jesus said, Matthew 5.23, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, go be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Because your heart needs to be altered before you bring your gift to the altar. That's where it needs to happen. The repentance there with the Lord. And then, guess what? Your heart's going to be in a right place to a restored relationship. First step in reconciliation is repentance, not to the person, but to the Lord. I had a couple of conversations just last week with two different people about this very issue. How do I impact my family? How do I change those around me? How do I involve those in, in, in the Christian life? Rick, you keep talking about evangelism and that we should be telling about Jesus. And every time I do, it gets me into trouble. What do I do? And the Lord gave me a word, and it was the same word for both these people. Be a torch. You be, you be the source of light in your family. Well, how do I do that? You turn to the Lord. You turn to the Lord and let His passion, His love, His compassion ignite you and you live for Him and you'll be amazed at how that alone begins to alter people around you. How your heart will change toward those around you in loving and in seeking restoration. But relationally, again, it's even more than this. I repeat something else I said when we started this journey with Job that the issue of repentance is not turning from sin but turning to the Lord. 
And Peter said, Repent and return, Acts 3.18 and 19, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed to you. So the restoration of Job and his friends here is a picture of the greater restoration of relationship to the Father. Job's repentance restores relationship and secondly and finally, repentance replenishes that which was lost. And this is huge with Job. Verse 10, Then the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. When did God do that? After he prayed for his friends. The Lord brought it all back, doubling. He restored it twofold, doubling everything. All his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him well, before they came, they, who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversaries that the Lord had brought on him. Something else that's wonderful here. Guess what? Job now can be consoled. His heart was too hard before. He was too upset. He was too angry. He couldn't receive comfort and consolation. Now he can. Uh, this is a beautiful picture. The family gathered around, and you can see them hugging. You can see tears, not tears of anger, not tears of bitterness, but just tears of loss. Job finally can actually grieve for the loss of all of his children and everything that had happened. And each one, as Job gave him a piece of money and each a ring of gold. So now family is taking care of families. Beautiful picture. The Lord, verse 12, blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys, which if you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, you find out it's exactly double what he had before. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. Now God has doubled that, replenishing what was lost and going even further, giving him twice as much as what he had before. It reminds me of what God promises Israel. And I think by extension, anyone who comes to repentance. Joel chapter 2, verse 13. The Lord says, Rend your heart and not your garments. That's true repentance. Rend the heart, not the garment. Return to the Lord your God. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. The threshing floors, verse 24 of Joel 2, will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up for you, the Lord says, for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. God says, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame because repentance replenishes that which was lost. We get into places in our lives and think, man, I am never going to get back to that place when things were so good. (laughs) You'll get back. You will get better than that. God doubles the blessing on Job here. Verse 13 goes on and says, And he had seven sons and three daughters. Wait a minute. He had seven sons and three daughters before. And they're all dead and gone. 
Now he doesn't receive back double there, does he? I mean, he should be 14 sons and 6 daughters if it's going to be double. Not necessarily. By the way, the fact that he has more sons and daughters means that there's restoration with wifey as well. Okay, They're doing okay now, apparently. This woman whose only line in the entire book was, Curse God and die! And off she goes. <laughs> So they're restored because they're having children again. Seven sons and three daughters. But listen, God did double His children. He does have double what He had before. What do you mean? Well, He had seven sons and three daughters before and they were all killed. And now He has seven sons and three daughters, but He still has the original seven sons and three daughters. What I think is implied here, and it's wonderful, is the other ten children, the first ten, are saved. You're going to see them again, Job. They're with me. And I'm giving you ten more to live out your days with. That you can raise, you can start over. And those ten are going to give him grandkids and he's going to see his great-grandkids and I believe even his great-great-grandkids. And it tells us, verse 14, the names of the three girls, which is odd. We don't get the sons' names. By Middle Eastern standards, this is weird, but we get the three names of the daughters. The first was Jemima. (laughs) She got into the syrup business at a point later on. And the second, Keziah. And the third, Karen Hapuk, which was probably fun to call her in out of the fields or call her into dinner. You know, Karen Hapuk. (laughs) These three girls have three beautiful names. Jemima. Which, depending on which commentator you believe, can mean either the day or, even better yet, the dove. In other words, Jemima was gentle and bright, spiritual, and good things about this Jemima. Keziah. Keziah is literally cassia. Now, some of you ladies probably know better than a lot of us guys what cassia is. It is cinnamon. In fact, a lot of the cinnamon that we buy on the market is cassia. It's not cinnamon at all. It's actually cassia. And that is what he names his second daughter, which I think is just precious, you know, cinnamon. And my little daughter Cinnamon and she smells sweet. And she was. Here's Cassia. She's sugar and spice and everything nice. And Karen Hapuk, whose name means horn or container, not horn like you know, but a container. A container of eye paint. That's what her name means. Container of eye paint, but the indication is beautiful. Beautiful girl. You've got dove cinnamon and container of eye paint. (laughs) But these three daughters are the picture of beautiful, beauty, wonderful girls. In fact, we're told in all the land, verse 15, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters and something else unusual. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. This is what a picture here. The three daughters got the inheritance. This was not done in the Middle East of Job's day. And it certainly was not done even as Israel came along and the sons got the inheritance. And the sons then had the responsibility of looking after the daughters or the husbands, the wives, would take care of the women so that the inheritance would be shared. But the inheritance went specifically to sons, not to daughters. And yet Job is looking out over his ten children. And no doubt, and I can relate, he's thinking, I, I can do something different this time around. <laughs> I've got little ones again, as you know. 
And Cheryl and I have had this conversation. I can do stuff different this time around. I, I don't have to mess them up like I did Corey. <laughs> no, but we think about what we did and, and, and what we're doing now and what we've learned. And Job, no doubt, he's looking at his kids and he's going, you know what, they're all getting, they're all getting the inheritance. He's just generous with all of them. And I love this because what godly restoration does is spread the inheritance among all the children. Sons and daughters alike. Isn't that what Jesus did? Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Paul said in another place, You are all sons, ladies and gentlemen. You're all sons. And as Les has pointed out, And you're all the bride, ladies and gentlemen. He spreads out the inheritance. This is what our Father has done for us. Verse 16, And after this, Job lived 140 years. After this. He was probably in his 50s or 60s. I mean, based on the 10 kids and where they were at, probably 50, 60 years old. And he lives another 140 years, so to 200, maybe 210 years of age, he saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations, so his great-grandsons and his great-great-grandsons. He got to be surrounded by all these kids. After he raised his own, he got to just you know, give money to the other ones and you know, give them candy when their parents didn't want them to have it and do all the great things grandparents get to do. And we're told, and Job died an old man and full of days. But you know something? This is not the end for Job. And he expressed it beautifully. In Job 19.25, As for me, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. So though he died an old man and full of days and blessed beyond measure and restored to relationship with God and and walking not only in his righteousness but now in the righteousness of the Father, Job has resurrection to look forward to. And you're going to see him. I'm going to meet him. And you know what? I'm not going to be too impressed. Because when I see Job, I'll be looking right past him to Jesus Christ who is the picture of perfection and righteousness. You know, when it's all said and done, the book of Job is really not about Job at all. It's about Shaddai, our Almighty God, our Father, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray to Him. Lord, You are so good to us. And even as we study and look at this last chapter in the life of Job, and see all the wonders of restoration and replenishing and revival and refreshment. Father, in all these things, we can say, Lord, we do relate. We get it. We understand. Some of us have have experienced this and have been in some of these places of the great joy that comes in walking with You. Others of us know this is our great hope. This is what we look forward to. No matter how difficult it may get here, no matter how much we may struggle, Lord, we are among those who choose to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we pray, Lord, 
Oh, that You would come quickly. For life is hard. And we don't always understand. But like Job, we repent. We retract. We turn to You, Lord. And we just say, Father, take us to be near You. In Jesus' name, Amen.